This is High School Not So Much a Musical, a podcast that takes you on a ride through the peaks and valleys of a high school journey. Here are your presenters, Nitin Jalodanki and Ayush Agarwal. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of High School Not So Much a Musical. Today we're joined by Mr. Sadhu Saila, who is the director of the Social, Inventor- Social Innovation Collaboratory at Fordham University. Essentially, he specializes in how uh, Fordham can make new social innovations that can improve sustainability in the world. So Mr. Silo, if you could talk a little bit about what you do at Fordham, that would give listeners a good idea of what exactly social innovation and sustainability is. Uh, uh, thank you. Thank you, everyone. Happy New Year to uh, each one of you, to our listeners. Uh, I hope that uh, 2022 will be a better year in every aspect, and I'm really happy to be one of your first guests in this year. So, my name is Sadi Busila. I am the uh, director uh, uh, of the Social Innovation Collaboratory and adjunct faculty there for the university. So, pretty much, the social innovation uh, is, uh, I guess, the institution interested with leading uh, Fordham University change-making campus initiatives. Uh, it pretty much serves as the hub and the main point of connection among uh, you know, involved faculty, student, alumni, and administrators. Also, external partners, uh, whether they are from the community or from corporate, uh, all of us working together to promote social innovation, to achieve social justice, social entrepreneurship, and of course, environmental sustainability. So we do this through uh, a wide range of programs that are both curriculum and co-curricular, which actually embrace experiential learning, uh, where students can actually involve in this project uh, through four axes, framework, uh, practical, courses and competition, and, uh, and events. So pretty much, you know, uh, this is just an extension of the classroom uh, in an environment that's much more applied to to solving social issues and then uh, complementing the environmental learning experience in a much more applicable way. Uh, And this is what I direct at Fordham University. And then our students not just learn in the classroom, but they learn outside the classroom. And they also embody the Jesuit spirit of, of, of educating the whole human being and also achieving social justice in the process. So pretty much that's what I do at Fordham. Yeah, thank you so much um, for that introduction. Now we know a little bit about what social innovation does and a little bit more about sustainability. So the first question I have for you is, um, what do you think are the benefits of like a minimalistic lifestyle, particularly in regards to happiness, the environment and the resources for developing countries? Uh, Well, I guess this is a very interesting uh, question. And when we think about the minimalistic lifestyle, I, I think it's a mindset. Uh, you know, we we live in the age where you know uh, everything sells, is around. Everything tends to be defined from a market standpoint. When you think about market, you think about enterprise, you think about services, but you also think about consumers and producers. So unfortunately, right now, everything is being driven by the market. And then, so there's always a necessity to, to sell. 
and there's also a need to buy. So when you try to really kind of get into the minimalistic lifestyle, then I guess you are much more mindful of what you buy, what you consume. Uh, do you really need it? You know, the, 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 my, the concept of necessity, wants and need, all those things are things that you all of a sudden start taking into consideration. So, you know, we, unfortunately, as I mentioned, that we tend to be driven by certain forces such as market. Right now, uh, people want more, you know, they want things to be accessible, they want things to be simple, they want the best care, they want the best food, they want the best experience. And all of a sudden, we start over-consuming things. But then those things that we consume are generated from certain resources, which are scarce. And then all of a sudden, you start becoming um, in a race or in a war or in some type of a competition to get those resources. But I guess the minimalistic lifestyle will certainly look at life more as um, on a need base, on reducing consumptions. And then if you really do that, it's going to benefit everyone. Uh, but I'm not saying that I'm, I want people to do it, but it's going to benefit everyone in the sense that we are not going to uh, spend so much time on things that we do not need. So, so when your question again, which is phrased as, um, uh, what are the benefits in terms of uh, happiness? Uh, I mean, uh, you know that's very subjective though when we really think about happiness what what should uh, make someone happy or not is purely subjective however when we look at it from an environmental standpoint and from resources and really from developing countries then uh, we can certainly say that the minimalistic lifestyle will kind of put some type of a, a pause on this ever-ending uh, uh, race to get resources uh, on also depleting uh, some of the environmental ceiling. Uh, uh, so, and then for developing countries also, uh, there's a bit of a contradiction because you know you want to be able to increase the capacity of the state to be able to provide, increase the capacity of uh, of of the state in order to also provide human capital, and that requires resources. And so this is really a. Uh, uh, my, uh, 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 something that's really hard to kind of uh, uh, put in one spectrum, but definitely has a lot of uh, important message to be taken into consideration, especially from an environmental standpoint. So could you talk more about your work at like the World Bank, given like the interconnections that the organization has with the global economy? Uh, sure. So prior to joining Fordham, I um, I worked for the World Bank in a project, uh, digital technology as a tool for poverty reduction. So uh, we really were looking at, you know, productivity and inclusion opportunity for the adoption of digital technology. So you have to understand the World Bank has two twin, the twin goals of the World Bank is uh, reduce poverty and uh, shared prosperity. And then uh, it, it tried to do that in a very cohesive way through certain rules and regulations. But then at the same time too, it tries to do that while, while, while adapting to uh, 
some of the global events and we are currently living in a, a, a very very exciting uh, digital transformation you know and the funny thing is uh, this was pre-covid and we already talked about digital technology and we know that in fact one of the answers that uh, we kind of came up with in the wake of the covid 19 was the digitalization of many services the digitalization of the markets so then uh, the question was then how really can we look at that um, process and then uh, engage the african continent in the most productive way in the most effective way while supporting the mission of the world bank which is poverty reduction and and shared prosperity and so this was a study that also looked to really answer the question raised by the world bank development report which was on features of work and that and the two main theory was that this uh, automation that's currently happening and automation will lead to job loss and this job loss also we need to think about how innovation can solve that problem and then when we think about innovation there's the most there's the need to make sure that human capital uh, the education is there and so how can we uh, uh solve this problem well in africa it's a different context because you cannot expect this 40 year old farmer to all of a sudden digitalize uh, or, or becomes uh, uh, literate of this new technology so how can we create digital technology that doesn't really require that high level of uh, education was certainly something that we had to, to talk about and and also in a much broader way you know you also had to think about the different opportunity that digital technology offers as source of productivity growth and 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 also as potential uh tool to accelerate progress um and this of course to solve the 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 twin goal of the world bank so we were looking at uh the potential to uh to to promote uh, entrepreneurship and to also understand what the digital technology can do to 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 uh, find those bottlenecks that are you know preventing entrepreneurship to grow and 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 and, and just that whole dynamic so that's really what the study was so I was involved with that and um and um you know I can go more in depth really to kind of talk about also the the risk factor especially when you think about cyber security when you also think about the affordability when you think about the cost of internet uh those things are also challenges especially from an african standpoint but at the same time too you need to be able to mitigate those risk and 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 certain question was to what extent can digitalization uh happen in certain sector of the economy and and what were the existing potential and the up impact for digital technology adoption uh for productive growth jobs and inclusions and really understand that from the african context so that's what we were working on yeah and particularly what you said there about automation and how in the next even 10 years there's going to be tens of millions of jobs lost due to the development of robots being able to completely autonomy tasks essentially and therefore displacing like human capital uh we actually talked to the CEO or sorry the CTO of a robotics company on robot uh which is a robotics company based in Hungary a few um 
a few episodes ago. And what he said that was really interesting was that even though there might be some short-term job loss, automation in other sectors has always led to future job growth. For example, uh, when the car was first invented, it obviously initially displaced like people who uh, rode horses and drove people around in horses. But later, that led to the development of millions of jobs in car factories, for example. So um, that's kind of like an interesting connection for the listeners between automation and potential short-term job loss, but also long-term potential job growth. And you also talked about how um, with climate change and with the lack of social impact entrepreneurship, there could be an increase in resource scarcity. And that can also lead to like the propensity for things like resource wars, you know, where countries are fighting over certain resources. So could you actually talk about how like a lot of people seem to think that, okay, climate change is only going to impact human lives, but could you also talk about how the lack of sustainability and like today's atmosphere can also lead to uh, economic impacts and what are some of the ways that that can happen? Well, I think, you know, the evolution of the word sustainability is something that I guess kind of answers the question in a sense that many people tend to associate sustainability with environment. But I think sustainability is more than just the environment. It's the environment, it's the economic uh, policy, but it's also the people. It's environmental, societal, and, 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 and financial uh, at the same time. So, so I guess, you know, it's about markets. So, you know, even though the, there's so many things in your questions, uh, and uh, the way I kind of understand it is that, can we, is there, possibility that people can go to war for resources is that ultimately what you are asking me yeah i'm kind of asking like like you mentioned a lot of people have the misconception that um climate change and like a lack of sustainability only leads to loss of human lives but could you talk about what are some of the ways that climate change leads to in uh economic degradation yeah um First of all, climate change was actually uh, a, a result of uh, an overuse of our resources. But that was done in the name of business, believe it or not. Uh, prior to 1400, 1500, uh, there was no income disparity between the continents. Uh, uh, the life expectancy, whether it was in Europe or in Africa or in Asia, was the same. But then uh, after 18th century, 17th century, 16th century, seven, you know, which coincided with the Industrial Revolution, you start to see the disparity. You start to see, uh, uh, you know, Europe and North America, offshore, uh, you know, offshores, they start to take off. And all of a sudden, those countries become much, much more sophisticated, much more industrialized, uh, and they were able to kind of provide better, you know, I guess, standard of living for their citizens, as opposed to those countries who did not industrialize. But then one of the net result of this kind of great uh, 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 progress, human progress, was the environmental degradation that has led to sea water rising and climate change and all the things, right? But then climate change doesn't necessarily follow the Westphalian 
um, uh, uh, concept. And by Westfield concept, I mean boundaries, countries, right? Uh, in the environment, they don't distinguish between, oh, this is Mexico and this is the United States. So it has to rain in Mexico and not rain in, in you know. So that's why, you know, one of the biggest goals in the, uh, for most of climate impact policy is to see the vulnerability of African countries or developing countries who have uh, participated the least in climate change, but yet are suffering the most. So, uh, but it was done in the name of business. So therefore business then have to adapt their financial models so that they can actually employ uh, practices such as ESG uh, or SASB or the UN Sustainable Development Goal to be able to mitigate the risk and to be really have a comprehensive approach to their, to their uh, business model where they don't only consider the financial bottom line, but also the impact on society and also the impact on the environment. So this is a mindset. And I think it's a mindset where the leadership has to be taken by uh, businesses. And you've seen that when you think about the BlackRock, uh, uh, I guess, uh, financial uh, firm, which has really dedicated to really uh, pursue uh, financial models that are much more sustainable with this net zero um, uh, concept and many other things. And also the UN SDGs, which is a framework where countries have agreed upon. And I think what that does, uh, it really kind of highlight the important uh, aspect of policies in really securing um, uh, 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 safe practices. Those are also important. But I think that it comes down to developing financial models that are considerate of the environmental implication and much more importantly, concept of sustainability as well. Yeah, so on that note of climate change, I feel like a really interesting question, or actually before I get to that, like a lot of politicians nowadays, they're, um, they're really into like, you know, uh, global warming, climate change, and like different economies. And that's what they use to like, you know, attract followers like in elections. So the question I have for you is that if you were a politician, what sort of like growth model would you use to propose um, to, well, sorry, what sort of growth model would you propose that would allow sustainable development that benefits all human beings? Well, that's a tough question to answer because it's all about the context. If I was a politician, I think I need to honor what my constitution are. And are you talking about a politician in the United States? Are you talking about a politician in developing countries? Because then uh, I, I guess the, the the issue is different. When you think about policy in the United States, it's about kind of, uh, you know, what you do happens at the global stage. You are a leader. Uh, you talk about policy in the United States, you also have to kind of deal with the dynamics of the state and the federal aspect of regulations and be able to mitigate that. Talk about partnership in the United States, there's also the aspect of lobbying, big business. So I think that I would like for you to maybe rephrase the question where you give me specific indication, or you just ask me as a as an individual who is part of this global economy, you know, what 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 policy should we include? And I think I'm gonna go ahead and answer that question because uh, the ultimate goal that we really have to think about is survival. You know, we need to really think about survival, our own survival, but also the survival of uh, of 
of our legacy uh, and when we think about legacy it's future generations so i think that uh, 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 throughout history people have always uh, developed their minds of really wanting to be more and you know separating themselves but i think that you know um, you one needs to really think about uh, a model that somehow would promote growth um, but we know that growth has certain limits so you could not grow forever so if i was a politician i would really use words such as thriving economy you know something that thrives because when something that thrives doesn't necessarily mean something that grows and something that thrives kind of uh, has more of a horizontal uh, 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 dimension rather than vertical you know it, 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 it's much more uh, 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 inclusive uh, it's also much more uh, effective it's also much more efficient so something that's inclusive something that's effective something that's efficient I think as a model will certainly uh, not hurt as many people as something that just grow and not be inclusive so I think that we need to really think about uh, certain things as mindfulness and, 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 and consciousness and, and inclusion and shared prosperity and, and thrive. And also, more importantly, really understand the system and having a systemic approach. Because sometimes people are so eager to solve problems, but they don't try to understand the problem they are trying to solve. So I guess those are things that I will really uh, push for. You know, promote a culture of collaboration rather than a culture of competition because at the end of the day there are no winners and losers we are we are all winners or we are all losers so yeah i don't know if i answered that question but i think i would really be uh try to be someone who champion collaboration someone who champion having a systemic approach as opposed to linear thinking someone who uh, 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 will give everyone a voice and, and promote diversity and inclusion. Yeah, that answers the question great. Thank you so much for that. Um, like adding on to what you were saying, you talked about like the inequalities between rich and poor nations and how like despite being poor, developing countries are, to, are forced to pay more for like the essential items like vaccines. So could you expand on that and explain like why this problem exists in the first place? Uh, the the problem of having rich and poor nations. Yeah, and why the poor ones have to pay more for the essential items. Well, this is because of uh, who control certain resources, and 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 I think that for that you really have to kind of uh, bring history. Uh, for example, the malaria vaccine. Malaria is uh, a, 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 an epidemic that has ravaged, ravaged uh, African countries or developing countries. But yet again, there was never been a global, I guess, uh, political will, global political will to solve this problem just because it doesn't really involve developed nations. And, uh, and, and, and if we think about it also, COVID-19 was something that really, really uh, came, uh, came about uh from a developed concept because you know yes maybe the first case was in wuhan right but how did it come to wuhan someone who had the means to take a plane to 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 afford a plane ticket to then go to europe or go to go to united states or go to england right 
So that's not the average guy from developing countries, right? Because they cannot even travel, right? So, so if you think about it, COVID-19 was an epidemic that was really caused by the rich, by those who can actually fly and who can actually travel, right? If you think about it, you know, before I can even travel to China, I need to go get a visa. And we know that there's always been some issue about issuing visa, whether it's in the United States or, 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 or Europe, right? My point is that, you know, this was something that the rich has brought to, uh, to the poor and had the poor have suffered from it. But the, the, the main point is that we live in a global community. We live in a global village. So we have to be much more thoughtful about how to really solve problems and, and, and really think about our, uh, and think through uh, our community as a whole. So, so if you notice, uh, certain countries are not able to get the vaccine uh, or or even take the PCR test, it costs, you know, it's costing certain people some money, right? So the vulnerability of those people should really be taken into consideration. And and I think that uh, uh, this problem exists because there's always uh, uh, a need to want to get more. And there's also uh, the lack of respect of certain uh, countries. I'm going to give you an example. For example, um, as controversial as President uh, Trump can be, sometimes he does uh, say some truth. Uh, and whether people agree on it or not, I let them to decide. He called the uh, coronavirus, the Wuhan virus, or the China virus. Everyone was opposed to it. So I was. I was also opposed to it. But then when I still thought about it, you guys know of the Ebola virus, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah. Guess who, how did that name come about? Do you guys know how the name came about? Isn't that the name of like a town? It's a name of a river in a town in Africa. And that's where the virus was discovered. So when people call that the Ebola virus, nobody says, that, oh no, it's unacceptable. You cannot call that, to, you know, make this association, right? In fact, everybody was okay with it. So then this double standard is something that we need to stop if we really want to solve the problem of this inequity that exists in the world. So, so, and I'm not saying that we should call the coronavirus the China virus, no. But why is it okay to call it the, the Ebola virus and not okay to call it the China virus? If we're going to abolish one, why shouldn't we abolish the other one? Call COVID-19 by its scientific name and called the Ebola virus by its scientific name. But the existence of these uh, double standard, I guess, is what perpetuates uh, the lack of respect uh, in, in, in foreign nation, the lack of resources, the lack of vaccine, and also the affordability of certain services. And I think that really gives us a good understanding of, you know, how exactly there's the difference between writ, like first, world and third world nations and how that kind of plays out on the global stage uh and we're kind of actually winding down in terms of podcasts so if you could uh give this is the staple we ask every single person who comes on if you could give some tips to high schoolers you know you're obviously a very sustainability and combating climate change and inequalities focused person so for somebody who also has interest in that realm and is in high school if you could give some advice to them on 
how they can best approach that, how they can like advocate for these issues, etc. That'd be awesome. Oh uh, yes, uh, of course, I'd be more than happy to. For me, I think uh, for high schoolers, uh, what you really have to really uh, uh, do is to uh, have an understanding of what are the drivers, the drivers of of the of the, of the world. And right now, sustainability is at the core of everything. Because sustainability at the core of everything, then you have to understand what is sustainability. And then know that sustainability is three things happening at the same time. Environmental, societal, and financial or economical, right? But then what is the most important thing? People have associated sustainability with environmental. But now the biggest change that has happened is the implication of the financial, uh, I guess, apparatus in solving sustainability. So then what I would like for high schoolers to really learn is to develop the skills and the knowledge to influence and lead social impact in business and impact context. How can business be an instrument for societal good? This is something I really would like for high school students to really think about. You know, what, you know, what are the approach to funding uh, impact to scaling program and intervention, whether it's through PPP, public-private partnership or corporate engagement or impact investment, decision-making and approaches to intentional impact that uh, students can learn for future experiences in, in corporate, leader, uh, co corporate leadership, in consulting, in, in, in foundation for bonus services, social impact leadership, social entrepreneurship and beyond. Uh, climate change was, was the result of a business approaches so then business approach has to be the solution to this current climate change uh, that we are facing. This is my belief. Of course, you need to understand the policy. You know, there's always the role of the politician, the role of government, right? But at the same time too, we've seen the rise of what we call non-state actors. That has been really determinant. Uh, people like uh, uh, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, uh, uh, Elon Musk, you know, uh, you know, these are individuals that all of a sudden have a seat at the table for decision making. And somehow it's important to really uh, give the power that the business have and then make sure the students understand that and really try to understand business, but understand the, 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 the dimension where business can really be an instrument to solve societal problems. yeah and that concludes our podcast so thank you so much mr sila for coming on it was great talking to you uh i was able to relate a lot to it because i do like public forum debates so uh I'll, we discussed like a lot of the climate change concepts and the economic concepts you also discussed uh i think like one of my friends actually ran an argument about like public private partnerships which you kind of mentioned at the end so uh yeah it was really interesting uh, i'm sure our listeners also enjoyed it and for our listeners stay tuned for future episodes thank you everyone and see you next time all right thank you guys and um good luck with uh the rest of the year uh that's our show for today now roll the credits high school not so much a musical is hosted by ayush agarwal nithin jaladanki and rishi sinha narration by samhit padala 
Music from Louis Luang Relaxation Cafe, Tune Pocket, and Infraction. If you like the show, please recommend it to your friends and family. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.